0: I wonder if I can ask you to turn to page 59 in the Pew Bibles, because we're going to read from Exodus chapter 2 and 3, but we're going to divide the Bible reading into two parts this morning. Moses grew up in Egypt, and then he fled to the land of Midian, and there he met a, a man called Jethro, who had a number of daughters. And uh, one of them was called Zipporah, and uh, Moses and Zipporah got married. And so we're going to pick up the story in chapter 2 of Exodus, uh, verse 22, and we're going to take it through to verse 12 of chapter 3. So Exodus 2, verse 22, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And though this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look on God. The Lord said, I have indeed And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain.
1: Well, we're going to continue reading in Exodus chapter 3 now. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn back to um, page 60 in the Pew Bibles. So it's Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to pick up the story where we left off in verse 13. So let's hear God's word. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold, and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs, or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him. And put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. And this is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and if you've uh, joined us over the last few weeks, you are particularly welcome as we carry on in this series looking at the book of Exodus. Shall we pray as we come to God's word? Our Father, we thank you for the sight and the voice that Moses saw and heard in the desert. And Father, we thank you that you are here with us today. And so, Father, we pray with confidence, asking that you would come to cleanse and to heal and to minister your grace. Please give us hearts ready to receive from you as we hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it probably feels like a long time ago since we were with the Israelites in Egypt. For anyone who wasn't with us, a few weeks ago, we heard how the people of God were groaning under their forced labour in the land of Egypt, under the wicked Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They needed a rescue. They needed salvation. And if if it feels to us like it's been a long time since we heard that, that gives us a little taste of how long it was for the Israelites, for the people of God, as they groaned in their slavery But at the start of our reading today, something has changed. Chapter 2, verse 23 to 25 tells us that the genocidal Pharaoh has died. He's gone to meet his maker. But the Israelites are still groaning. And even though they don't cry out to God, he hears their cries. And God begins to act to keep his covenant promises that he made to the patriarchs, to Abraham... Isaac and to Jacob long ago. And those covenant promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises are the same promises that God is still keeping today. And this church here, this church is part of the same people of God that was suffering in Egypt all those years ago. Their story is our story because their God is our God and their promises are are our promises. And so we read, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses was one of those baby boys who faced death because of Pharaoh's wicked policy. He had to be abandoned in a basket on the Nile. But he was rescued from the waters, just as the Israelites are going to be rescued from the waters in a few weeks' time. And when Moses grew up, he tried to rescue the Israelites by himself. He failed to do that. The Israelites didn't want him to be in charge of them. And so Moses left Egypt, and he ended up carving out a quiet life for himself in Midian. Years and years and years pass by. Forty years, in fact, the New Testament tells us. And one day he's trekking in the wilderness, miles away from anybody else. And he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. And he sees this strange sight, this bush, that's burning, that's on fire. And yet it's not consumed. It's not burned up. Well, where is this mountain of God? Well, I don't know if you picked this up when, we, when Frank read earlier. Just flick over the page to chapter 3, verse 12. And the second half of that verse. Do you see there? God says to Moses, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Well, where do the Israelites end up? They end up at Sinai, don't they? That's the, the familiar name for Horeb. This is where the Israelites' journey is ending up. This is the goal, if you like, of their journey, Mount Sinai. And that's where Moses already is in Exodus chapter 3. He's kind of got there already. He's reached the destination already before the journey has even begun. So worshipping the Lord on Sinai, this is the goal of the Exodus. This is the goal of the journey. And often it helps, doesn't it, to have a goal ahead of you for the journey Uh, I know if I'm trying to visit uh, a member of the congregation here who I haven't uh, visited before, it'll help me to kind of look at the Google Street View to kind of get a picture of their house so I can not sort of drive past it, which I am prone to do, unfortunately. Uh, So uh, kind of seeing the goal, the destination, helps you to not miss it, but it also gives you inspiration uh, and tells you uh, uh, where you want to be going. It gives you the energy and the drive to get there. Um, if you're thinking of doing something like becoming a nurse or a doctor, it probably is a good idea to do some work experience, isn't it? To, to see if this is really where you want to end up. And if it is, that will give you the drive to keep going through all those long years of training. Well, today, as we hear God speaking from this burning bush, we're getting the beginning of the journey of salvation. God is coming to rescue his people, but he's also telling us the destination, the destination. He's telling us the end goal so that we can follow this journey and so the Israelites can follow this journey over the next while with expectation and excitement about where they're going. So let's follow Moses as he goes over to investigate this strange bush. Well, he, no sooner he does so, than God says, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I think there's a lot we can learn from here already. This bush is not like all the other ones in the desert ecosystem, okay? You don't go and investigate this bush like any other natural phenomenon. You don't bring your camera or your measuring stick to try and work out what's going with, with this bush. No. You stop you recognize the limits around this bush. You recognize this bush is not like all the other bushes. And you don't come as you are. You take off your sandals. Because these dead, leathery things have got no place uh, in the area around this bush. Because the one who is present in this bush is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I wonder what you make of that reaction. Well, later on, Moses will ask God to show God, him his glory. And that seems to be a good thing. So it doesn't seem like God always wants us to be kind of hiding our faces before him. But it does seem like it's a good place to start. As somebody once said, the fear of God is like the morning star which ushers in the sunlight of comfort. So the, the fear of God isn't the kind of the fullness of our relationship to God, but it is the beginning of it. It's an appropriate place to start. Moses was afraid to look at God. And so before we look more closely at what God says from this burning bush, I want us to pause for a moment. Because there's a caution here, isn't there? Let's not come to God as though he's on our level, as though he's something we can just investigate on our own terms. And there's a challenge here too. Don't come to God without expecting to be changed. Moses had to take off his sandals. Our salvation, what we're heading towards, is going to be a transforming encounter with God. We won't remain the same. And there's also comfort here too. Because the God who speaks is the God of the covenant. He's the God who promised to our fathers to be with them and with their children forever. And now he's come. He's come down to spell out how he's going to save his people from their misery. So let me suggest that we keep the burning bush fixed in our minds as we go through the rest of this passage and really through the rest of the Exodus. Keep the the, the idea of the flames and the warning and the wood that's burning but not consumed. Keep that in your mind's eye as we go on through this story. Remember to sort of keep your sandals off, if you like. Try and free your mind from all those dead kind of thoughts that, that will stop us from encountering the God who lives. Because the goal of our salvation is a transforming encounter with the God who's far above us and yet comes near to save us. Well, as we look at the rest of this passage now and hear what God says to Moses, I want to just focus on two big things. I want to look at the way that God saves us And then secondly, the God who saves us. So just two things from the rest of what we've read this morning. So let's carry on over the page in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the, Egyptian, the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Israelites are oppressing them. Do you notice God says, I, 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 five verbs about God where he's, some, where he's the one doing something. But then he says, verse 10, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I think that's a surprise, isn't it? God says, I'm coming down to rescue my people. And then he says, so you, you go. Well, Moses certainly did seem to be surprised. Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. So Moses doesn't answer this question about who it about who Moses is. He doesn't talk about Moses' attitude. He doesn't kind of go through Moses' spiritual gift list to sort of pep him up and see if he's really fitted for this task. No. God says, I will be with you. Should be enough for him, shouldn't it? And this is the first big thing then that I want us to see. This is the way that God is going to save his people. As God works through a man. In the Exodus, salvation happens as God and a human being work side by side. Now Moses, in the rest of the passage that we read, continues to protest. Five times in totals, he says, but God. And each time, God says, no. Now, we're not going to look at these, all of these this morning, but the general pattern is pretty obvious. Every time Moses protests, God points to himself, and he talks about what he's going to do and what he's going to provide for Moses. And the most obvious example are the miraculous signs that God is going to do in Egypt. Have a look at verse 19. God says to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go Unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So these are the 10 plagues that we're going to be looking at tonight things like turning water into blood. And if you've been reading along in our Bible reading plan over the last week, you'll have seen that time and time again, whenever God says, I'm going to stretch out my hand, He actually tells Moses and Aaron to stretch out their hand with the staff of God in their hand. Um, God says he's going to strike the waters of the Nile. And then he says to Moses, you strike the waters of the Nile and it will turn to blood. So do you see how God is committed in this story of the Exodus to working through a human person, sort of showing that his his power is going to be channeled through this person. In the Exodus, God saves as God and man work together. And Sometimes it feels very different, doesn't it, to all of this in the New Testament. God doesn't turn water into blood. He doesn't send hailstorms on people. It can all feel a bit, maybe a bit quieter in the New Testament. But God still saves in just the same way. In the New Testament, God and man come together in one person. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God in the flesh. He's not just God and man kind of cooperating or working together, but the God-man. He's the incarnate person of the Word of God. And when he comes, he does do some amazing things, doesn't he? By his own power, he turns water into wine. He stops storms. He raises the dead. And this is the way God saves us, Old and New Testament, through God and man coming together. And I think what, this is what God is wanting to give Moses a glimmer of in the burning bush. Why does God appear in flames of fire within a, quite an uninspiring bush, a thorn bush? Well, I think the fire represents God. Later on in Exodus, we'll be told God is a consuming fire. And the thorn bush, I think, represents our humanity, our weakness. And that humanity is not consumed when God comes and descends in the fire And so the burning bush is like a picture of God and man coming together in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how God saves. So don't think of the New Testament as kind of like plan B. Or don't think of the Old Testament as a kind of a weird and wacky bit of the Bible that you can kind of do without. You can park that now. The way God saves is the same in the Exodus and in the New Testament. And so as we see God working through Moses, striking the Egyptians, bringing the people out, doing all the other things Moses is going to do, we're going to see some outlines of the way Christ works for us as God and man are united in him. So that's the way God saves us. The the only other thing I want to focus on this morning is the God who saves us. We've seen that the goal of our salvation is is worshipping God on this mountain. And the way that we're going to get there in this story is God is going to bring his mighty strength to help uh, Moses and to bring him out. So you can understand Moses' question in verse 13, I think. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So this is the God who saves us. Now notice here, Moses doesn't just ask kind of who are you, He says, what is your name? What? And in the Bible, that's that's how names can work. They're not just like random labels that you stick on things. In the Bible, names often tell us something about what a thing is. They tell us it's nature, if you like. And that's what God is giving Moses here. He's giving us a way of describing what kind of a thing God is. What Are you God? Moses is saying. Now it's worth pointing out as we look at what God says that the the words are quite flexible. Uh, So you can see your footnote B there. You could also translate this I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be, or you can say I am what I am. So you can't make too much of the, the, the present tense or the future tense. You can't make too much of the what or the who. And so it's sort of tempting, isn't it, for us to think, well, this is all a bit murky, but not really sure what to make of this. Let's just move on. But we can't do that. Because this name is hugely important. You see, God goes on to say, uh, verse 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And if you look in your footnote C, the Hebrew for Lord, in capital letters, sounds like and may be derived from the Hebrew for I am. So these names are linked. And this name, the Lord, comes up 6,000 times in our Bibles. We're not going to be able to move away from this name. God wants to burn something onto our minds as we hear this, this morning, that we can take away into all of our Bible reading, into all of our knowledge of God. So it's worth taking the time this morning to try and understand a little bit, as much as we can, the answer God gives. What kind of God are you, Lord? Well, some people think that God is is simply refusing to name himself here. It's as if he sort of says to Moses, I am who I am, and I'm not telling you. Uh, Other people think, God is sort of delaying naming himself. He's sort of saying, look, I can't tell you now, but I, when, you, when you see everything I'm going to do, then you'll know who I am. So I will be what I will be when you see the things I do. But neither of those things really give Moses much help, do they? When he goes back to the Egyptians, he, he's meant to say, to, uh, to the Israelites, sorry, he's meant to say, I am has sent me to you. It looks like God does actually want to help Moses. He doesn't just want to kind of give him a placeholder. Moses isn't meant to go to the Israelites and just sort of say, oh, I don't know. I don't know who he is or we'll find out. It seems more like God is saying to Moses, this one, the I am, he has sent me to you. So I don't think God's simply refusing to tell us what his name is here. But I think he is refusing to name himself by anything else. God is not saying, I am a bit like a giraffe. No, he's saying, I am what I am. There's a kind of a circle here, isn't there? I am what I am what I am. Now, other people, last option, other people think that the circle is kind of God talking about his, his faithfulness to his promises. I will always be what I promised to be. I was the God of your fathers. I'm your God today. I will be the God of your future as well. And again, I think there's truth in that. God is promising to be utterly consistent. There's going to be no change in God at all. What he is, he will always be. Whatever I am, I am, He says. But the whole point of this name does seem to be that it's a kind of a circle. God is not here promising to be with us so much as making it as clear as possible that he doesn't need us. He's totally independent of us. I am what I am, says the Lord. Are you with me so far? This name is pointing to God's utterly unique existence. I am who I am. Now, normally, if we want to say what something is, we can kind of give it a definition. So we can say Susie is a sheep. We can say Rebecca is a rabbit. But we can't do that to God. We cannot define him. This name is about the closest thing you'll get, and it still sort of says no. We can't use any of our categories to put God into any sort of a box. The best we can do is actually almost to stop short. Instead of saying God is this, or God is this, or God is this, we're better to just say God is. God is. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And this is what those, those four letters, Y-H-W-H, which we have in our English translations normally as the Lord in capitals. That's what this name is, is meaning. Uh, by the way, we, we're following the practice of Jesus and the apostles when we, when, we call, when, we use, when we refer to this name as the Lord. So I'm happy enough to just go with that and say the Lord. But what does it mean? Well, according to our Old Testament lecturer in college, uh, who's just written the new kind of standard commentary on Exodus, he says this name, uh, Y-H-W-H, the Lord, most likely means he is. So God says, I am, and God wants us to call him, he is. see? So whenever we see this name, the Lord, in capitals in our Bibles, we're meant to think back to this moment. To the burning bush. And God's saying to us, I am who I am. And we're meant to say, Yes, Lord, you're the one who is. And that's been the consensus of Jewish and Christian readers of this name for over 2,000 years. This name means that God is, independent of anything else. Now, when we say that God simply is, well, when we say that, something, when we say that anything else simply is, we're, we're normally saying something quite boring, aren't we? You know, lots of things exist. Uh, you can exist and be an amoeba. You can be very limited and still exist. But when we're saying that God is, we're, we're really saying that actually if we say any more about God than that he simply is, we'll actually limit him in some way by using some kind of created category to define him. God's existence is the fullness of life, the totally inexhaustible fountain of everything good. So even if we could add up every good thing in this universe, everything that is in our world, we still would not even get anywhere close to talking about all that God is. well, we're nearly done. I would love for you to take this name and really let it seep into your mind and into how you think about God. I think that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to take this name into our Bible reading and allow it to reshape how we think about God. I think, if I could summarize how I think this name is working, what we're meant to do with it, if you think of our thoughts about God as kind of like a hot air balloon, They're they're always prone to drifting down. We're always prone to making God like us. Calvin says very helpfully that our hearts are a factory of idols. We're always prone to remaking God in our image when we think about him. And this name is like the burner in a hot air balloon. Okay, I am what I am. Every time you think about God and you start bringing him down to your level which you have to do if you're going to think about God. At the same time, you need to flick on the burner. I am what I am. And allow your thoughts about God to kind of rise back up again to, to something towards all that God is. I am who I am. Unique, independent, independent inexhaustibly full life itself. This God is the goal of our salvation. He's the God of the Exodus. He's the God of the Bible. He's the God of our salvation. The God who saves us is the one who is. That's why it's going to be a transforming encounter, isn't it? That's why it's going to reshape us when we encounter this one and this is the God brothers and sisters who comes down this fiery living one to bring us up to him so we can worship him glorify him and enjoy him forever and so through him and with him be praise and authority to the Father with the Holy Spirit forever and ever Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, a little like Moses, as he encountered the burning bush, we are afraid to look at you. For Lord, we know that you are far beyond even our best thoughts about you. And so, Father, we thank you very much for your grace. We thank you that you came down, your own son, taking on our weak and frail humanity in order to bring us up to you, to reshape our thinking, to bring us out of darkness into your wonderful light. And so, Lord, thank you for the chance we've had this morning to consider you. And, Father, we pray that you would teach us more of you day by day, week by week, and especially as we consider you as we go through this story of salvation in the Exodus. We pray that you would show us more of who you are, the one who is. We pray that all in the name of your precious Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: Gracious Lord, as we bring our offering to you, thank you that you are a communicating God who is and who has revealed yourself to us and in all our contexts of joy and in sorrow come in order to rescue us. Enable us now to go and to live in the light of your holiness, love, and power, and our prayers are made in the name of Christ and for his glory.